0: This is a Clark University podcast.
1: RFU contains grown-up themes and occasional course language when they get carried away. Please take care while listening. Hello, professors. This is Andrew Hart. I produce this podcast. And I'm also a creative producer in Clark's communications office. This is an emergency request for you all to watch Deep Water, the 2022 erotic thriller directed by 80s hitmaker Adrian Line, starring Ben Affleck and Anna de Armas, based on a 1957 novel by Patricia Highsmith. This film has everything. A weak script, goofy performances, snails, and driving while texting accidents. Is it camp? Is it just bad? Does it matter? Let us know.
0: This, this, this is recommended
2: for you, for you, for you, a podcast where Clark University screen studies professors watch
0: and discuss films suggested by the, the, The. community.
2: Welcome to RFU. I'm Soren Sorensen.
0: I'm Rox Sommer.
2: I'm Hugh Manon. This is an emergency edition of the RFU podcast recommended for you. Andrew Hart, uh, our intrepid producer, suggested this film, but he was kind of coaxed into doing so uh, after we had a group text thread. um, And I think I might have brought it up first. And we are, of course, talking about the 2022 erotic thriller directed by Adrian Line, Deep Water.
0: Yeah, I I had just hit the pavement on a walk for the afternoon uh, and (laughs) Soren slid into the text messages being like, deep water, we got to do this for the podcast. And lo and behold, I was like, I'm watching this tonight one way or another. And Hugh was like, I'm right in the middle of it now. And so uh, in short, (laughs) by the time I got home an hour later, we had a plan. We had a mission. We had to each set aside five hours (laughs) in the coming week (laughs) to wash us very long film not once but twice because it does very much each of ours jams but i imagine in slightly different ways
3: i mean if i may you know listeners like when you go to search this up there's a there's like all sorts of potential error involved so this is on hulu it's called deep water and it's got ben a- ben hufleck ben affleck <laughs> and anna de armas and that's the one to look for if you just sort of randomly go at this, you're going to find yourself in some other deep dark book of
2: shadow water movie. <laughs> something. Shouts and to Chris Rubel who couldn't stop call, we couldn't stop calling it uh, deep dark waters last night when we were right <laughs> deep <together>. dark waters.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or Andrew Hart who titled the name of this Zoom session deep wawa. Deep, deep wawa. I think we should yeah. just call it deep
3: wawa in <laughs> deep this Wah. podcast.
0: If we want someone else to blame other than Hulu, we can also blame one Patricia Highsmith, the novelist. Uh, who wrote the 1957 novel of this very same name, and who's also, and arguably more well-known for, books along the lines of Strangers on a Train, Talented Mr. Ripley, and The Price of Salt, all of which have been adapted into incredible films by folks like Hitchcock, Vendors, uh, Mangala, whose name I never pronounce right, uh and cavani and haynes um heavy hitters all right, heavy hitters all. heavy hitters <laughs> <laughs> and in fact i only had clued into myself that patricia highsmith is someone whose novels i might want to check out because i realized she was responsible <laughs> uh for the narratives of a number of my favorite films including those previously mentioned but this film yes stars Ben Affleck is Vic Allen, a wealthy techie responsible for designing a computer chip used in drone warfare. Uh, and Vic Allen is married to a woman named Melinda, played by Anna Armas. And the two have a six-year-old daughter named Trixie. The film is set in Louisiana, and the central dramatic conflict revolves around Melinda's serial affairs which she flaunts in front of Vic and their friends to many embarrassment, least of which is Vic, uh, though he shrugs it off whenever whenever his friends press him about it. Uh, Before long, Vic develops a proclivity for murder. And while Melinda is the first to accuse him when one of her lovers dies in a pool at a pool party, The film ends with her destroying evidence of her second murdered lover's death. Mm -hmm. I have the benefit of having read the novel this summer. I'm making my way through all of Highsmith's work. And the interesting thing about this novel is actually one of the slowest and most boring for quite a while. There is this like not murdering people is really teased out for a long time. And then they come in rapid succession. And I have more to say about where where the two diverge. But for much of this film, it is a a fairly faithful uh, adaptation if set in a different place, set in a different period.
3: It should be said too that, you know, Rox has read the original source material, and I consider Rox a Highsmith expert. Whereas (laughs) not only am I not a Highsmith expert, but I did not read this particular um, novel before seeing this. And so my experience of this film is going to be really, I think, different. One of our responses to the House of Gucci was that it wasn't camp enough and it didn't deliver enough of the bad to be good. And this film, boy, this film for me really delivers the bad in a way that I can completely get on board with. This film is really cohesively what it is. It's thoroughly deep Wawa and you may not like what it's doing and what it's doing may not be objectively good, but it is very certain of what it's doing. And I really dig that.
0: Can you say more?
3: What it's doing, I've got a list in my notes, and we can tackle this however you want. But a list in my notes that I called uh, the ARFWOOT. So we were talking the other night about acronyms. So my acronym for this is ARFWOOT. Just so anybody, just, just just to
2: clear things up he said we were talking the other night about acronyms. I just want everybody to have a picture of what our personal
0: <laughs> this lives is are what,
3: like
2: outside of this podcast, outside it's of
3: Clayton. hot, you got hot it. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. This is what screen Ooh-wee. faculty discuss in their off time. Um and so ARFWOOT stands for any right-thinking filmmaker would obviously omit this. So <laughs> the ARFWOOT is a is a long my ARFWOOT list is a long list of things that Just they do not resonate. They feel wrong. They feel, in some cases, morally, ethically, and in every other primal sense, just not like they should be part of this film. And I, I am totally there for it. I'll just give you a couple. Number one, weird Kubrick-esque shot of two people in the hallway at a party with paper bags on their heads with weird faces painted on them. Why is that there? Never explained. We don't know who these people are. It's just there. And we have to contend with it later. Drunk Melinda in the car finds Trixie's finds her daughter Trixie's lunchbox. Takes a half eaten apple out of it. It's brown, after having been bitten by Trixie at lunch and discarded. She picks it up, starts eating it, and feeds a piece to Vic. Who would do this? A brown, oxidized apple? You've got to be joking! Out of a child's lunchbox, it's so brown, which is a pit of bacteria.
2: It's got food coloring on it. (sighs) They they were really, you know, they overbrowned this apple. One more and then we can come back if you feel like it or not. Joel
3: Dash, Joel Dash is alert so he's uh number one on the list of potential murderes, but doesn't end up getting murdered and goes to Albuquerque. Joel is down. allergic to shellfish. Or he lives to this day. Right. Can't eat lobster bisque that Vic made for him. So Vic makes him a grilled cheese sandwich, which we see him eat, an adult man at this lovely estate eating a grilled cheese sandwich. Then Melinda shares it and they rave about it. Like it's the greatest piece of culinary art ever cooked. This is supposed to show us how Joel and Melinda are childlike, I think, but oddly it makes the film itself seem childlike because the moment is so on the nose. And if you want more, Arf-Woot's, just, just flag me down at any point and I'll <laughs> give you, I've got 10 I love, more. I
2: love this. Arf-Woot. Um, the, the grilled cheese is a, a one in a, a series of emasculations or castrations for this character, right? I mean, he's he's spent all this time making lobster bisque, which isn't an easy, that easy a dish or, or a quick dish to make, right? And his wife doesn't even like lobster bisque. This is something that after a few years of marriage, you probably find out about somebody, especially if you're rich. Um, and he's made this grilled cheese, and it's not just... That he says is the grilled cheese okay because who, you know who doesn't like a grilled cheese but yeah the guy kind of like he's like this is the he's like the best grilled cheese I've ever eaten in my life or something it's like he's having this this religious experience with the grilled cheese as if he's gotten it out of a you know artisanal food truck uh, you know on on Harvard's campus or something and then Ana Diaramus has some and is similarly really impressed by the grilled cheese but in a way that sort of says yeah you're really great at mil- making grilled cheese but not much else absolutely i mean you were talking about a
3: castration and emasculation don't forget that joel is so dumb that he can't <laughs> pronounce the word emasculate i'm not trying to
0: emasculate Rem- remasculate you what he's like i don't mean to re, re- emasculate
3: <laughs> yeah
0: yeah yeah he, re, re, and uh, and this is where like the thematically, like the film is like right on the nose of a Highsmith novel and this Highsmith novel. so Victoria Hesford, who is a true <laughs> highsmith expert, um writes of this novel that this is like a, a story in which the private space of home and family and their structuring gender asymmetry are turned inside out. Right, and that is the crisis at hand. Um, that we have uh, a man in the kitchen and a woman <laughs> sleeping around. Right, um, and in the case of the novel, it's coming in this like very particular historical like moment when uh, the home is being touted as like the defining space uh, of like American citizenry. Right, so instead of out in the public sphere or in institutions. To prove your Americanness means to have um, the true, like patriarchal um, home uh, and have it in balance and in order, and that is what Vic is really, really struggling with. Um, it's a different. It's a different America, but uh, I, I think this tension around nationality is actually teased out m- more here by having Melinda not be an American, right? Um, And in fact, she makes quite clear on a few different moments that that she finds living in America, life in America, uh, really repressive.
2: Well, look, uh, Victoria Hesford may be a real Highsmith expert, but you're our Highsmith expert.
0: (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you.
2: It's it's a very strange film in that I think I was kind of expecting something maybe more a little bit in, more in line with some of his other films. And I'm not sure maybe it's because he hasn't made a film. If I'm, lo- if I'm reading this correctly since 2002, which was unfaithful um, with Diane Lane. Um, and then before that was the 1997 uh, Lolita remake, um, which I missed. Um, and, and then there's, you know, Indecent decent proposal and Jacob's ladder and fatal attraction and nine and a half weeks. He kind of goes on quite a, quite a tear there. Um, but this is a film that I, I, I was sort of ready to find, either of these people or both of them together or, or, or her, you know, she and her lovers to be, you know, sort of exceedingly appealing or, or that, that there was going to be something more kind of sexualized or erotic about this erotic thriller. And I, I didn't, it didn't really connect in that way. There was something kind of off-putting about the whole thing and I was trying to figure out why. And so I, I, I dialed up 1987's uh, Fatal Attraction um, and I started to watch Fatal Attraction and I'm thinking maybe the reason and and that that has its own issues, obviously. Um, uh, but you know, I'm trying. I'm thinking maybe because the thing that they're doing in Fatal Attraction right away in the film is is so forbidden and illicit, and there's this immediate guilt and forbidden fruit aspect to it, and this. Um, you know the, the, you know one person wanting one thing and one person wanting another, but they thought that there was some understanding and, and that there really wasn't. Whereas deep water has its tentacles in a number of different relationships. Her, um, her appeal is kind of like spread out, it's spread very thin. Um, in that you know, she's she's he's competing for her attention, but with there several suitors that are kind of in and out, and we're not sure whether this is an open relationship, whether they actually do have an understanding of what she's doing, and whether he kind of likes this idea that she's emasculating him. Um, and I don't know how you watch this film without thinking he's getting some pleasure out of it. And certainly when he develops a taste for homicide, that th- th- that goes even further. I think, but I, so I don't know if I'm saying that well, but I'm tr- I was trying to figure out a way into this by looking at fatal attraction and it didn't really work. I
3: think, I mean, there's a, there's, I think you're right on the money. I I think the uh, issue here is that, you know, you've got a film where the male protagonist seems um, oddly too emotionally traumatized. So, so let's say this is an open relationship and they've talked about it and she's allowed to have these affairs. He's not going to, but she's perfectly allowed to. And they've worked that out. And that's just what this relationship entails. Then if that's the case, why is he so emotionally traumatized by an open marriage that he himself sanctions? And that's not I mean, so to me, the answer here is this is a film about perversion. And I think, you know, Vic is a perverse subject. He truly actually needs this to be really harmful to him. So it's not there's no safe word. Right in this relationship, this is not play, he needs to be hurt by her, and in some sense, I think that makes the whole film just derail for the vast majority of audience members. So, you watch this and you're thinking to yourself, Okay, like I would never put up with that, or that would make me so jealous that I'd go into a rage, or blah blah blah. You can imagine all these normative ways of approaching this, but this is not normative. Like, he really wants to be harmed by her, that's what sort of Appeals to him in a relationship. And I think it's impossible to get your head around if you're not sort of in that place. His whole MO is to maximize his own trouble to kind of put as much pain in his life as he possibly can. And thus, and I would argue, and this is what makes him like a perfectly perverse subject, and thus maximize his desire. So he desires, I mean, this is a desiring subject. This is someone whose life is full of interest and drama. And every turn, every time he walks around the corner in the house, like some new trauma is confronting him. And that's how he likes it. And I think most <laughs> of us watch this and think that's torture. Like, how could anyone live that way? And, and he lives that way. And so this film is just at odds with normativity in a profound, profound way.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I I found the the parties that they went to to be torturous. I I it wasn't it was, there was nothing particularly appealing about their lifestyle or their friends or you know anything about it. It all seemed kind of deeply uncomfortable. Um, and I I guess I guess that's I guess that's part of the point. Um, but I yeah I don't I don't I'm not sure if I could if I if I was really feeling you know a, any of the feelings that he's he was you know going for. I I was also wondering aloud. I, I found myself kind of thinking w- was there a deleted scene where. Uh, ben Affleck muses about uh the snail's ability to eat wallets like um and ID cards because <laughs> when he, he one of the one of the people that he kills he has the wallet on him and he, he we we learn by the end of the film spoiler alert that he's placed this wallet in a little terrarium with some snails well why
0: it's poetic justice right so this is the second lover he kills and it's Melinda's like college years or you know high yeah, school yeah. era like boyfriend who wants to eat the snails uh, too yeah, yeah who wants yeah. to eat the snails uh and instead the snails eat him well right like not not literally <laughs> his body yeah but like um but like uh, an emblem for him right if it's your identification like that's very symbolic
2: but 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 again right? like wouldn't of, there, of, shouldn't there have been a monologue where ben affleck explains the snail's ability to digest leather? like because I don't think that that's really I don't think that's actually a thing and I was like what th- is this really going to decompose in here these these snails aren't eating this his license well, this isn't happening it's
0: a trophy right
2: here's
3: what it is it's luca brazzi swims with the fishes but instead <laughs> it's charles Delisle or whichever boyfriend it is swims with the snails you know that he just immerses him in snails Oh, my
2: God. And that's it. It's a symbolic gesture. I totally... He should have yeah. he should have fried up his, uh, his, his, his wallet in some garlic and butter and, and fed it to his <laughs> wife. It's perfect.
3: I mean, don't you think, though, that the film tells you Like, the film is involved in this constant meta-commentary on weirdness as a topic. This film uses, I love the word weird. Normality. Normality and weirdness, right? So this dichotomy. And constantly is talking about these two things. And I love the word weird. So anytime somebody says the word weird, like, my ears perk up. And so the the (laughs) film says things like, you know, uh, like, I think the crucial line is is when Vic says,
0: I'm just blurted out, okay? Okay. A few of us are concerned. Yes. That they're fucking.
2: What if your concerns aren't my concerns?
3: What if your concerns aren't my concerns? And and so you get this sense that he's just this off, like he's out of like the realm of reality. Melinda says. You're so weird before the two get into the car, which is like a really weird line in and of itself. Like what film says you're so weird between two adults, Mm. especially in a murderous, you know, relationship like this. Um, Vic says, do you wish I were normal, Melinda? Because if I were normal, I don't think Joel would be over here having dinner with us. And later he says later Melinda says he doesn't want to control me like a normal man. And Vic says, I'm not normal um honestly like the film makes the point makes a point that i think most hollywood films would never dare to make which is and again this is a quote vic says this to Trixie: people are strange and grown-ups are complex and the complexity here is that this guy is not desiring like most people desire like what he wants is to desire like he wants he, he desires to desire and that means you know, as crazy as her, you know, approach to like relationships and sexuality is like he's there for it because he wants his life to be full of trouble. Don says, you're, Don, the superego in the film says, you're a weird guy. So I've been told. You're a weird guy. And Vic says, <laughs> so,
2: so I've been told.
3: It's just just telling you what it's about, you know? It's like
2: Jeremy Irons, like, you have no idea. Like, that kind of reversal of fortune. Yeah. Like, Klaus von Bülow or something, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, well, a young college-age Patricia Highsmith journaled, the morbid, the cruel, the abnormal fascinates me. Um, She also, a few years later, described murder as a kind of making love, a kind of possessing. And it's interesting that we're talking about what's going on between Melinda and Vic and with Vic's murdering um, and Vic's also tolerance of her affairs as about his desire and in a way of ch- channeling or expressing or getting to his desire for her. But I think what often happens in Highsmith novels is the the, the, mur- the murdered is the love object, right? Um, and there is a sort of social pressure to get these um, people who are making a fool of him out of his way. But there's also a way in which Vic Allen in the book is like a very repressed subject who can't love so freely um, and be so sexually expressive. He's a very like, yeah, very not asexual in the way that we use it today as a like denitarian term, but um, he's a very like non-sexual being including with Melinda, right? Um, and that's changed here. And that's one of the huge um, shifts. And so there's the sort of perversion of Vic Allen in the book is um, that of of murder and of obsession with these men, which may or may not be queer, like a queer perversion that he's so obsessed with his wife's lovers, maybe he wishes he was lovers with his wife's lovers. Um, But in any case that that's where his passion um, and his feelings and his expression come out is in killing them, not in making love to her. And here it's sort of a both and, right? Is that is that how you guys are seeing it in the he, he film, seems, or
2: he seems pretty like like he's I think he's desiring her during the film like pretty intensely, and I think that I think that it's the it's the yeah the absence the lack that that she you know foists on him by by having these affairs and by denying her body to him and all these kinds of things, but I think he he that's that's all part of. The, the the it's going to end in them ac- actually having sex, and so when that happens, I think I, I think that's actually what he wants, and then and then they start this this cycle over again. I mean, it, part of the re- part of this. St- I mean, the obvious kind of cyclical thing is that the film begins as it ends with him coming home from a bike ride and then her kind of leaving and, you know, leaving him and going up the stairs. And, and at the end, she says, I saw Tony. Right. I mean, it's like because she burned his wallet and we sort of find we see this this ending where she, we, we realize that, well, she's sort of in on it in a way at that point. And, and they just sort of oh, continue. Yeah. Right. Until these two bodies are found within you know half mile of each other or whatever. Yeah. Um, but there's also a scene where they, where she comes and sits on his lap, and they kind of are smiling, and they're—it's re- almost like we've we made it through this, like we're we're, we're rekindling this, and we've now we can. You know, we can make up and go on, and, and all these kinds of things, and it, and it does give you the sense that like she's she's fine with it as well. So he's fine with her affairs, and she's okay with with him killing her lovers, and they're going to keep doing this until you know someone goes to jail or is hurt, you know, physically. <laughs> um, and and it's 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 pretty that that part is pretty. Morbid and, and 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 sort of clever and maybe my only maybe the only, the only thing that I really liked about the screenplay, I think, which is, you know, that, that kind of cyclical nature of their behavior. I, I, I sort of yeah. appreciated that, I guess. I mean,
3: there's two things I want to say about this that I think
2: really I, I don't know if this answers it, but
3: I think this kind of very much continues along this line. Number one, in the end, when they come together and it feels like something's resolved at the end of the film and she then uh, ultimately burns the ID that was in the wallet in the snail box of the of the second killed boyfriend the, the when she af- she does that. I think I'm right after he presents her with this art magazine. So one of the things he does in his retirement from the drone chip manufacturing <laughs> industry is that he that is that he publishes an art magazine full of interesting photographs. And we take it to be his photographs. <laughs> I think they're his photograph. Yeah, I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. yeah but like, they take we take them to be his photographs, and what they are is largely, with maybe one exception, um, weirdly out of focus pictures of her body parts. Right. So it's never her. It's kind of like fetishistically her foot or her shoe or whatever, kind of distanced and out of focus and highly abstracted. Right. And so I think that tells you a little bit of something about him and kind of like where his desire lies and so number two point number two is a question are there explicitly i don't mean like subtextually are are there explicitly any queer people in this film so there are parties that have lots of i think that are racially mixed in ways that we would all approve of and this <laughs> seems like a pretty copacetic bunch of people in new orleans having a good time together but i can't recall a single overtly queer
0: character no. in this film. I thought, you know, I was trying to anticipate what a 2022 version of a Patricia Highsmith novel, uh, you know, film of a novel about domestic affairs would look like. And when there's this back and forth where uh, Dawn's wife, does anyone remember her name? The blonde woman? Kelly, right? Yeah, Kelly Wilson at this second party that they attend, which is a daytime party, um, you know, sees melinda on the dance floor as melinda always is and she comments to Vic, who she's just met your wife is gorgeous uh and then Vic asks her to dance which is out of (laughs) we can talk about non-dancing men as perverse psychopaths if you want but anyways (laughs) wait what about uh, a non-dancing
2: man who just suddenly decides to dance that's (laughs) even worse
0: (laughs) that's even worse (laughs) but um this prompts him to ask kelly to dance uh to melinda and everyone else's surprise uh and then they have this huge marital spat on the way home in the car uh because melinda is jealous of kelly and did he want to and because kelly and she starts by saying it's kelly's quite beautiful so these two women have commented on each other's physical beauty and i really thought they were going to throw a woman lover in the mix mm. right like melinda's having all these like affairs with men like why not why just not? for the heck of yeah. it or maybe for the sp- to spite Vic or to turn on Vic for, for one reason or another yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, go there. But that's not where it went. No. I
3: mean, I, I, I mean, from a kind of semiotic perspective, like I, I thought uh, very much along the same lines, I kept thinking, why isn't one of these couples? So, you know, um, yeah. It's yeah. got these friends, these two guy friends. Yeah. They're like, all, why isn't one of them in a gay relationship? Couples, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. So why isn't like Lil rel Howery and I can't remember her name. Mary is his the character's name who plays his wife. Why isn't that a gay couple? And it's just not, or this what? is just like yeah. straight down the line, heteronormative again and again. Yeah. And
2: it's a real question. Like why? Why? Yeah.
0: Why isn't like there are a bunch of lesbian? That's part of the bro pack. You know? Totally, <laughs> I would do it. Well, totally. they, they, they are they
2: yeah. they they are kind of making an effort in extras casting and in and in but you know the the day players and the people who play the sort of collected you know uh, window dressing. But it's like, yeah, you're right. It's, it's it's very and maybe that's just sort of staying true to the novel, quote unquote, or trying to trying to really kind of comment about heteronormativity and and how. But but it does what movies always do, which is that, that this idea of be, ha, opening up a relationship or having or having a, a, a male with this kind of idea of being humiliated or emasculated can never work. There's nothing, or or maybe it does work at the end. It's not really a sad ending. I mean, for them, for the for the no, relationship, I, I, it's a happy ending, right?
0: Yeah, we can let's talk about that in a moment. I will say <laughs> that there's one thing along heteronormativity that was particular to the film. At least I don't I don't remember from the book. Um, the moment when everyone else leaves the pool and goes inside, such that Vic is left alone with the man he murders, um, it happens. Like it happens like that. But in the film, it's very—it's a very specific scenario, and that is uh, Melinda is first called in by one of the other women, who's a wife and a mother, to help her bake cookies. <laughs> And we all know Melinda doesn't bake; she can't even make herself coffee. <laughs> and yet, there's this irony that she has to like, she has to like, she's hailed by like heteronormativity to go at v- least pretend that she can help yeah, yeah. with baking. And that is what gives Vic his opportunity to kill because they do this yeah. like same sex, um, like homo uh, not not homoerotic, but homo um, social. Division of like spaces and labor yeah. that leaves the men alone and therefore yeah. allows them. I mean, th- to first fight. off,
3: the cookie baking scene was our woot number 16. Uh. And, <laughs> and especially when he goes in, when it Vic burns. goes in and burns
2: his finger on the
0: cookie his, pan. And that
2: becomes his alibi
0: later. That
3: becomes his alibi. <laughs> no, that's
0: brilliant. <laughs> just, How is that not? Because he could have
2: burned his fingers any time of that day. It makes it's no sense.
3: It's absolute like, no. camp insanity. Like it's, it's <laughs> so good. I just live for this stuff. But, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, I I, I absolutely saw that. Like, I kind of thought, all right, this is this kind of maternal call. And, you know, people are now going to do this very hetero, what feels to me like a very heteronormative practice. Um, and so it's just shocking to me that in the midst of this bacchanal, we get cookie baking, but that's what we've got. And so I guess, like, isn't, like, what I'm saying is not, by the way, this film needs more queer characters like sure that would be fine but my point is that it doesn't have those queer characters and ends up being some sort of weird meditation on straightness taken to its radical extreme or something like you know we talk a lot about gay camp and this is like so gay camp is camp gay camp is fun gay camp is a celebration this is straight camp and it's murder <laughs> it's you horrible. know it's it's yeah. just it's horrible and it's boring and it's yeah. incomprehensible so, like, in some ways, this is a film that that just shows you how fucked up straightness is. Like, I think that's really <laughs> what this... this is. And I think it knows it. I think it really knows it.
2: But can you make a film about boredom and incomprehensibility without being boring and incomprehensible? I mean, that's Good the question. That, that's the question, yeah.
0: <laughs> so, I would say, like, yes and no. Yeah. And th- that it is, like, owes much to, like, its thinking with Highsmith. Um, but, and I, now I'll get to where the two plots greatly diverge um, and that is in the very end and so my other joking slogan about this film is like make heterosexuality hot again so part of what i've sort of teased at is like vic allen is different like his desire for melinda is is like tied up um in his murder in a way that it isn't in the book it's more very directly about like power and control and um owning one's, like, property, like, this elaborate, you know, space and mansion and one's woman in this, like, you know, really, like, fucked up way, but it also – but like the genius of a Highsmith novel is that it get it like reels you in so that you can you get why Vic is mad like Melinda is acting horribly. And I think she's even more like she's a terribly annoying character in the book. And at least here, Anna D'Armas gives her like a real like power and sexiness and and compellingness in some of their um disputes. Um, but. But it's also, like, working for Vic, right? And it works out in the end. You you know, Soren said, like, they're going to keep repeating this, but I'm also not sure. Like, at least for the time being, Vic has, like, finally, like, met her, like, need for a passionate man who will stick by her and do anything for her. Um, and so they are now, like, colluding uh, in this crime and this violence. This is how the novel ends you're you're along you're sort of on this like you know genre journey and you're like kill them kill. you know like you get to live vicariously through vic who enacts these violences and you don't feel too bad for these guys
2: Um, they're terrible in their own ways too i mean it's just a movie or it's just a novel right yeah Yeah.
0: and this is what the genre does and this book crosses the fucking line and what is so upsetting is the book ends with vic killing melinda wow yeah and and getting caught and being taken away by the police from his home and his daughter and it's it's so brutal because you you suddenly like if you were drawn in enough to make it like 200 pages in then you like and a similar thing happens in talented Mr Ripley you like you become complicit, and like that is what Highsmith's genius is about is that like you are reeled in, you are enticed, you are turned on, <laughs> and then the true evil of what you have participated in as a as a reader is revealed to you. Mm and it it makes you feel so icky (laughs) it makes you feel so gross and while there might be parts of this film that like yeah (laughs) can make you feel gross or weirded out um that 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 this killing brings them together doesn't end in like the most horrid of domestic violence scenarios is like a real nice like romantic bow um (laughs) That, that I don't think is quite the same condemnation of heterosexuality that the novel that the is. novel
2: is right yeah it's it's yeah. yeah there is something about the ending like, like I said there's something about this kind of cyclical the ending being the beginning and, and and that that I actually sort of appreciated I mean if if, if nothing else um, about the film. Uh, I'm trying to think of, I'm trying to be as charitable as I can, but I, I can't stop thinking about, um, in, in Salon's review of the film, um, there's this line, Ben Affleck is about as panty wedding as a dehydrated gelatin cube. Um, <laughs> and I don't even know what that means exactly, but I, I'm, i I love that turn of phrase and, and, you know, uh, shout out to Melanie McFarland, uh, <laughs> for that Salon well, got, commentary. <laughs> I mean, I've got a, a, a good way to wrap this.
3: If you want to because it it, it involves discussing something we've not talked about. Um, And that's the character of Don, who I find fascinating because when he shows up, so Don is this writer who lives in the community. He's older than everybody else, like everybody, his wife's way younger. But um, Don is the character who sort of really brings things and leads things to the climax. Um, So a couple things about this really quick. So first off, I take this film to be very much a film noir in tone and in structure and in lots of different ways. So much so that I actually see it in an extremely tight parallel with my favorite film or one of my favorite films, double indemnity. Um, And to me, Don is the Edward G Robinson keys figure. So he's the one that's kind of watchfully, kind of hovering around the, the periphery of the activity of the Walter Neff character. And in this case, that's Vic. And so at the end of the film, um, so we, we could talk endlessly, I think, about how this connects with no, noir. That's not particularly relevant. Although Don is a writer of noir fiction. Yes, like yes. he just says it out loud. Right? So, or noir television it's, shows. It's so something. on the nose. It's just like really ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> but in the end, so Don is this superego figure, right? So he's hovering around and he's kind of like the guy who's constantly threatening, like overtly threatening Vic by saying, I know you did it, I know you killed it, I know you killed this guy, you said you killed this guy, and then you said you were joking, but I know you
2: mean it. Vic, Vic Van Allen. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know exactly who you are. Oh. You killed Martin McRae.
1: Oh my God, it was a joke.
2: It was a joke, really? (laughs) Funny.
3: And he's right. So he's consistently right and nobody will believe him. And then in the end, this absolutely bizarre scene takes place where out of nowhere. So Vic (laughs) is up trying to stuff when I say this, it's almost (laughs) unbelievable to speak these words out loud, but, like, Vic is trying to stuff the corpse back under the water, because he's
2: done kind of a bad job of weighting it down. Yeah, with a stick, though. Like, it doesn't work like... That's not how physics works. Like, you have to... Yeah, he's just pushing it down into the water, and it's floating back up. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And so there's this whole premise of, like, he went back there to get Melanie's scarf, which she left there when they were having a little romp. He goes back to get the scarf. He notices the, the body is rising up. He goes down, tries to jab it under the water, and then at that exact moment, for no reason whatsoever, Don shows up. Hey there. Hi. Hi.
1: What are you doing? That's just, uh went for a little ride. Uh, Melinda forgot her scarf. Oh. Found it. Found it. Great. Oh.
2: What are you doing with that stick?
1: Nothing
3: like like Louisiana is not a pretty big place with a lot of like intricate woodland areas to go visit. Don just happens to be at the exact right spot and he sees him and he's watching him jab the body down and he says, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. As soon as he sees the hand come up over the water, Vic goes, starts chasing him, and it turns into a bike versus car chase, which makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. In what
2: universe can a bike catch up with a Subaru? It ain't gonna happen. Well, this guy's a this guy's a really poor driver, and and Ben Affleck knows all the shortcuts. Yeah, he's
0: trying. Yeah. He's trying to text as he's driving. Hi. I'm And he's saying the dumbest shit, like "This is it. This is the book."
1: Yeah, right. Right. Supposedly
0: he has a script in the works at Hollywood already, but no, like this is the real one. This is the one that's gonna.
3: When he also he's texting his wife, right? He's he's sort of texting her to sort of say, "Gotcha. I was right all along."
0: I think it works very well cinematically, as unbelievable as it is. They do what they can to like make it believable by showing don driving extremely erratically unnecessarily even like prior to being (laughs) to to the big mistake um and 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 that we've been set up to see Vic like be a powerhouse on the bike all, all movie long and that he knows this territory and he knows the back the back roads um trails but it also works really well in parallel editing chase sequence terms because like there is a the question: Will Vic catch up with Don? But also, what does catching up with Don yeah. like? What's what is when going a bike to happen catches up to a car, when a bike catches up with a car? Yes, exactly, right? <laughs> and so, what happens is Vic is like thrown from his bike in front of the car, and so there's this possibility that Vic dies, right? Like, and that's like that's another tension point. Um, but Don swerves so as not to kill Vic. Um, But Swerve's so hard that he drives through like yards and yards of like rambles and then off a cliff like he can't break that like the no tree possibly breaks him. And so it's like it's like a perfect murder that like really couldn't have been planned. But like, I don't know, it was like the one moment where I did feel like a little pride for Vic. Like, yeah, I was sure. like, that was genius. Like, that worked out. Yeah, he, d- wow. he
3: did it.
2: It was, like a, it was like a Hail Mary, and he, and he did it, yeah.
3: Well, and it yeah. also has this interesting shape, right? Because he's on, so Don's on these winding roads, and what does Vic do? He takes a shortcut. So quite literally, this person who I'm arguing is this perverse subject, does the thing that the perverse subject does, which is he shortcuts, right? Mm. He, he literally short circuits this whole uh, geographical arrangement. He takes the road less traveled. (laughs) And exactly, he's off-road. Isn't he the off-road subject throughout the film? Like, he's never playing by the rules, and in the end, he doesn't play by the rules, and it works out for him. Thank goodness, and it's the perfect crime.
0: Oh, my God, it works so well because of his drone thing, too. He is the drone. is the drone. I've got it in my
3: notes. Vic is a drone. Yeah. He hovers (laughs)
2: around looking, 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 and then he strikes. And as a result, this film takes its rightful place in the pantheon of bicycling movies like 1979's (laughs) Breaking Away, 1986's Quicksilver, 1985's Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and 2012's (laughs) Premium Rush. (laughs) A lot of bicycling in this movie. So if you like bicycles with Batfleck riding it. Hey, I got one last thing.
0: Oh, uh, I have one uh, last uh, thing. Uh,
3: it's maybe this is the same thing.
0: <laughs> no, it's not.
3: So I don't know how do you want to handle this? Should we flip? You go. <laughs> All right. OPP means something. And here's what it stands for. So in this film, there's a scene in which they make the ultimate missed opportunity in terms of soundtrack. They mm. play Naughty by Nature's song, Hip Hop Hooray. Hip Hop Hooray, And they yes. don't play OPP. O-P-P. Yeah. And think
2: about what OPP, do you know what OPP stands for? I do. Uh, go ahead, Soren, tell us. Well, it's other people's uh, P or P, depending upon male or female genitalia, whichever you'd like to go with. Right. So yeah. you down with OPP means other, other people's, people's blank. <laughs> it's so
0: good. I'm like- <laughs>
2: So
3: that's what it means. And that's what I learned on my trip to Hollywood. How did they leave out? How did they opt for hip hop hooray given the theme of this film
2: instead of OPP? It's mind boggling. No, I, I, you know, it's funny that you said that because when that song came on and everyone was really like happy about it. I was thinking that might be the most excited anybody's ever been to hear Hip Hop Hooray by Naughty By Nature. Like that's really, I, I was kind of astounded by that, but you took it a, a step further. So I commend you. I have nothing more to say. <laughs> Rox, Rox has the exact same point about OPP.
0: <laughs> I have a different C comment, which is to quote one last Highsmith journal from July 7th, 1941. There was a cat. (laughs) And that is to say, where was the cat in this movie? Can can either of you tell me?
2: Yes, I can. I I never see the cat. I'm like, I have cat
0: blindness. There was a
3: tabby in the window on the street when Charles Delisle, or no, was it Charles Delisle? The the fourth guy was picked up by Vic and the Bronco.
0: Not the piano player, the ex-boyfriend.
3: Yeah, and that the cat was really interested in what was going on
0: too. Oh, oh good job! God. You guys he are wins. good. You guys are good.
2: <laughs> yeah, he will always win that. I, don't, I didn't even want to play that game. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! Um, we need a we
3: need a like super cut with that cat in the window on an endless loop while opp plays on the soundtrack.
0: <laughs> yes, please. All
3: right, would we RFU? Yeah. <laughs>
0: This is the
2: greatest movie I've ever seen in my life. I mean,
0: you kind of have to, to watch see. it.
2: Like, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Like, you, you should definitely watch it.
0: Sure. <laughs> sure? You're <laughs> the Highsmith expert. You should, it should be part of... <laughs> so I thought, I mean, is this the time for a pedagogical moment? Probably not. <laughs> you know, I guess there. I wouldn't recommend this film as much as other films that I have recommended on this podcast. That being said, I would assign... The heck <laughs> out of this film, and I would love some my dream course someday. Uh, and I just need some time to like ruminate on it. So I, I know I have the privilege of of teaching this whenever, nearly whenever I want. But someday I would love to do a highsmith course where we read her novels, watch all the cinematic adaptations. This one will certainly be there, as well as read the journals and the journals of her lovers. It is. It is. It will be a wild course, and I'm I'm really in some ways. Rating, waiting for the right cohort um, who will be down with this sort of project. Wait, does this
2: rank near the bottom of Highsmith adaptations? Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay. yeah. That's that's, that's my I way of saying yeah. of saying that. But it was fun.
1: Recommended for You is a Clark University podcast. The opinions expressed are that of the professors and not of Clark University. If you'd like to recommend a film for an upcoming episode, you can email rfu at Clark U. Or leave a voicemail at 508-798-4355. That's 508-798-4355.
3: The Recommended for You podcast is produced by Andrew Hart for Clark University. Music by Jimmy Jackson. RFU logo by A.J. Simmons.
2: As we end this season, I say thank you to Andrew, thank you to Rox, and thank you to Hugh. Um, and congratulations to Rox, a double congratulations to Rox on their book and their marriage. Marriage. Mm.
0: Yeah. Thank you all. <laughs> Hope it works out better than these two. <laughs>
2: Do you mean our marriages? <laughs> I don't no. know.
0: No, <laughs> the movie. There oh, was a oh, tie the
2: movie. Yeah, the I got movie. it. I got it. I got it. The this, movie this, about marriage. These two people. I brought it back. It. I, brought I thought it you meant it these back. two marriages, and I, I was just like, "Wow, all right, okay. which which oh. two? <laughs> all right, I'll
0: re-record that." No, no, that's, that's good.
2: We're leaving it. I like it. It's a perfect okay. ending.